welcome to In Your Brain. I'm a neuroscience student at the University of Florida, and I'm super curious about everything having to do with the brain. Join me to discover what happens in your brain. Humans are social beings, meaning that we evolved from living in communities. And we hear all the time how beneficial it can be for us to engage in social activities. In this episode, we'll learn about the importance of social interactions, the areas that are part of the social brain, and we'll discuss how our status in the social hierarchy is represented in our brains. We have a wonderful expert guest who will guide us through. My name is Nancy Padilla-Coriano. And I'm an assistant professor in the neuroscience department at the University of Florida. Her lab in UF studies social behavior in rodents. I'm curious to know how she defines social behavior. Oh, what an interesting question. So I'm going to think about it from like, if I am talking about a species, what does it mean for a species to be social? If many aspects of our of the life of that individual relate to others, for example, for us, uh, we mate, we stay with our mate, we have children, we work with people. Um, isolation is actually unhealthy for us and for many other animals. So that means that we're social animals, that we're social beings. Um, so that's what being social means to me, is that you need people and that you will be unhealthy without people. So we need other people for our health. But why? How can it be bad for us to avoid social behavior? You know, when people think about, like, how do we become social animals? So there's been evolutionary drives that have made us social because we survive better in groups than alone, basically. Think about it takes a village, right? That <laughs> phrase of, like, raising children or getting many things accomplished. So as a species, we... We thrive better with others. And what does it mean to that we can be unhealthy? So actually, like, social isolations, and these studies are in humans, and the work can be replicated in animals across species, you know, mice, which is, uh, and rats, which are two models that are very, very common in the scientific world, are both social species. And social isolation triggers inflammation in both the human and also these animals, like, extended periods of social isolation. In humans, where we can ask them about the subjectiveness of the social isolation, we know that it's perceived loneliness, what is unhealthy, because it it triggers the immune system. So it's like as if like your body is being attacked. And then it basically makes you more more vulnerable to even things like infections and uh, more vulnerable uh, for psychiatric disorders. And and then there's studies as well that show that like elders, like old people with more social connections and, and, and stronger bonds actually live longer. Mm. So in, I, you know, I, I don't know like the, the, the numbers off the top of my head, but in societies in which elders are not isolated, you know, that they're part of the central... A family structure. Think about like grandparents that live with their uh, kids and grandchildren. Those grandparents are live longer than those that are isolated. Wow. So 
So it seems that it can help us, you know, like it's all evidence that, you know, we are social species. We really need those social connections. It is true that sometimes we need to be alone, which is why it's the importance is like, it's not the same being alone than feeling lonely. And that's something that's really difficult to study in animals um, because we can't ask them, like, do you feel lonely? <laughs> so we can only like socially isolate them and social isolation for short periods actually increases like rebounds the sociability and sociability is like the tendency to socialize with others so if you socially isolate and most of these studies have been done in mice um it's possible that in rats as well but if you socially isolate animals for a short period say like a 24 hours or a couple of days when you put them back with others they're interacting with others way more than normal we call that like a rebound sociability effect but if you socially isolate them for a really long time, so we're talking like over seven days, ten days, then they become aggressive to others. And that is actually something that is true in humans as well, um, that chronic social isolation can change something in your brain and make you more aggressive. And then there's this one study in mice that shows that chronic social isolation triggers this particular neuropeptide all over the brain and that neuro that increase in that neuropeptide is what is driving the the increasing aggression that you have with chronic social isolation so isolation can change your brain especially chronic social isolation i like the distinction between wanting to be alone versus feeling lonely or isolated because these can be very different experiences and as the studies show they affect us in different ways Short periods of social isolation can increase our sociability, while chronic isolation can actually change the chemicals released in our brains to make us more aggressive towards others. I want to know where these changes are occurring in our brains. What areas are associated with the social brain, and how do we know? Oh, part of the social brain, there's so many, but there's so many. Uh, the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the hypothalamus are very central to it. Um, so I would say that for me, those are the, the parts um, that I think about. In rodents, there's specific nuclei that are in the hypothalamus that are underlying the ability of the animal to do good parenting behavior and mate. Whoa. Yes. So... First, there's, like, original studies that will just lesion, you know, like, these nuclei and, like, the animals will, like, not mate at all or get super aggressive. Um, so, aggression, mating, and parenting are all, like, very much controlled by the hypothalamus. Um, so, there's all these tiny little nuclei with specific populations of cells that if you drive them optogenetically, you can have, you can make, for example, like... You can help, like, virgin mothers, like, take care of their pups because you're driving the pathways that, like, yeah. make them pay attention to pups and things like that versus normally you would get that through experience. And you can turn on and off aggression in rodents with these very specific manipulations using optogenetics and, um, you know, so and scientists have recorded from these tiny nuclei now that we have techniques that allow us to use Approaches to record from specific subpopulations because these are very small nuclei mm -hmm. and uh, it's very specific genetic subpopulations. But now we have ways of recording from those subpopulations. So scientists have recorded and shown that like 
these neurons are super sensitive to like social stimuli. For processing of social reward, the the mesolimbic pathway, so basically like the the ventral segmental area and that those dopamine connections to the nucleus accumbens, which is like reward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because social interactions can be rewarding. Not all of them are rewarding, right? (laughs) But then, to in order to in order to get that reinforcement um, from social interactions, you need the same reward pathways that you need for for other non-social rewards, basically. In mice, which is the animal model that we use to like try and understand, you know, like the mechanisms of everything, because we can dissect things. In mice, it seems like they find rewarding novel interactions. Mm. I don't know if this translates, quite honestly, because I prefer to interact with people I know. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's more stressful with someone exactly. you don't know. But for some reason, like, if you give a mouse a choice between interacting with a novel individual or a familiar, they'll spend most of their time with the novel individual, investigating the novel individual. Mm. So it's, it's something about rodents. <laughs> I think dogs are a little bit like that too. Think about if you go to a dog park and then they're like totally on top of the dogs they don't know because they're smelling them. They're trying to figure out who are mm-hmm. you, whatever. But humans would avoid strangers. You know, mm-hmm. like we are, comp- imagine getting on the face of like, I don't know <laughs> who you. Are you? <laughs> who are you? In fact, yeah, it's probably like a, it's a behavior that would be considered like socially awkward and wrong. Uh-huh. But for them, interacting Especially when they're isolated, you know, if you mm-hmm. isolate them, then you're like, they're more sociable. Then they, they have a very similar, and this is actually a recent study, very similar dopamine responses to getting access to a novel, in, a novel conspecific. A very similar, um, dopamine responses than when you, they get a foot reward. This was a very recent paper. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like for some rodents, engaging in social behavior can be just as rewarding as eating food. I personally cannot relate. It's very common for scientists to use animal models to understand neural mechanisms of behaviors and to explore questions that can't really be answered with human subjects. But human social behavior can be very different from that of rodents. So how do we benefit from studying them? That's a great question. So how are these animal models, and let's talk specifically about mice or rodents, different? How are their social behaviors different from human social behaviors? And how is the way that the brain controls those behaviors different or similar? Every species has uh, species-specific social behaviors. Um, but then there's some, like, commonalities of, like, taking, like, mating, taking care of, like, um, of of infants and things like that that are very uh, conserved across species. But the way we interact with each other is very species-specific. Like, I guess for those that don't work with mice, the main way that they interact with each other is sniffing their butts. (laughs) Definitely don't do that, right? (laughs) Um, So in order to understand their brains, we have to consider their behaviors that are relevant to them, which are not going to be the same behaviors that are relevant to us. So... What controls those very specific, like, motor actions is probably species-specific. But the things that modulate, like, the behavior happening or not happening is probably conserved, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And one way in which social behaviors are 
or the control of social behaviors is conserved is that across species, the prefrontal cortex uh, modulates social decision-making. And also something else that I study, which is social dominance. So different species uh, that are social organize into hierarchies. And even though the way the hierarchy is expressed behaviorally is different and specific to each species, the ability to perceive social rank and behave according to social rank is dependent in the prefrontal cortex, in mice and in humans as well. So that's a way in which the generation of the behavior that's specific to the species is going to be different in depending on the animal, like how the brain is doing it. But then how it's controlling and modulating that behavior could be conserved. Let's dive into how Dr. Padilla Coriano studies social dominance in her lab. So social dominance is our... It's consistently winning in points of social conflict, right? Like, so the individual that gets priority, that's winning these encounters with others. And so that is the definition of social dominance. But the reality is that when we're part of a group, then there is this natural organization into a hierarchy based on the how dominant the different individuals are. Um, that's in the case of the wild. Humans form their own hierarchies as well. And perhaps we could argue that it comes natural to them as well because they want to be, you know, some individuals want power, right? So then they form these organizations in which they can obtain power and work for power, or, you know, get to the power, powerful positions and whatnot and then have control. Um, so, you know, like universities are hierarchical structures, right? That's one example. Um, and probably every every institution, right? has a hierarchy as well. Um, and then we're really aware, both animals and humans are very aware of their relative ranks within these groups. And I study that in mice because they're very hierarchical and we can group house them easily and we can see, we can measure their dominance with different behavioral assays. And one that I've been using a lot lately because I designed it during my postdoctoral work is a competition for a reward that is signal. So then I can play a little stimulus that each animal learns individually that predicts a little drop of a reward and they're very motivated to get that. And then basically the animals that are dominant get the majority of the rewards. So I get to like force a social competition and see their behaviors real time and record from their brains like to see what's happening. And that's how uh, with my previous work, I showed that the prefrontal cortex in similar ways that it is doing the job of like helping you perceive social rank and keep track of social rank in humans from what we, even though the work is correlative, but in fMRI studies, you know, it points to as you learn social ranks of a group, then uh, activity in the prefrontal cortex uh, increases. And if you use transmagnetic stimulation, then they learn faster the social ranks. Mm. Yeah, which is kind of cool. And then mm. like in rodents, if you stimulate this structure, animals become more dominant. And then my work showed that if we record from these cells, the signals of the neurons from this brain region actually are predictive of the social rank. So it's like they have a social rank reflection. You know, their activity is actually reflecting the social ranks of the animals they're interacting with. Wow. Yeah, so there's a signal right there. And then I applied tools like electrophysiology and optogenetics so then I can dissect what are the subpopulations that are coding for these things or that are signaling these things and 
I can see what circuits in the brain change the behavior, their dominance-related behavior or their social interactions as well. Then another thing that I'm really interested in is just, it's not just understanding how does the brain control social dominance and our ability to know social rank. So I'm interested in that question. But I'm also interested in how social rank affects other things that the brain is doing, all other social things. Like, for example, how is social rank affecting decision-making? Um, and how is social rank affecting how the brain saves memories of other individuals? What if that individual is dominant to you? What if it's mm -hmm. subordinate? Does that change how the social memory is stored? Mm -hmm. Is there part of, in the memory, is there information about their rank? So neural activity in the prefrontal cortex is different between dominants and subordinates, reflecting social rank and predicting behavior. It's interesting to think about how we naturally develop these social hierarchies and how our social rank can dictate our decision-making. But how flexible is social rank? If the behavior changes even though their ranks haven't changed, for example, the, the, the subordinate is, is winning a bunch. Mm -hmm. Is that reflected? Yes. So the competitive outcome is reflected in the PFC, and it seems to be independent of the rank. It's like two separate signals, mm -hmm. basically. Like There's like who's winning right now and who has the history of having won and being dominant. Um, you can manipulate the brain. For example, if you leash in the PFC and a dominant, they're going to become subordinate. So that's like the nuclear option wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's forcing the change. But you can also rehouse the animals, and they're going to have to form a new hierarchy. There's very few studies on this to see if, like, what's the probability that if they were dominant before, are they going to be dominant in the new group? We don't know, at least in the laboratory setting like that. That type of work hasn't been done, and I hope that my lab is going to help us understand how this social history, including, like, your previous social rank history, how does it affect, like, your future? Um, but you could force, for example, like, imagine you have four cages of four animals each. And each of them has a stable hierarchy. And if you rehouse the four dominant animals, they're gonna, one of them is going to end up being subordinate, right? So you could use this rehousing to force a change of a dominant becoming subordinate. That would be like, put them with other dominants and one of them is going to have to be the subordinate. So yeah. The way we engage in social behaviors is a spectrum. And for some people, it can be very uncomfortable and difficult to interact with other humans, especially those dealing with brain disorders. How can we study the brains of people with social anxiety or autism? And what does it mean when other people, on the other end, are able to engage in social behaviors very easily? Yeah, so there's indeed many neurological-based or, neuro let's say, like, brain disorders, because it includes both neurological disorders and psychiatric disorders that disrupt our social abilities. And I feel like I keep learning. The, the last um, disorder that I learned about was actually Alzheimer's, because I don't really, my research doesn't relate to that. But when I came to UF and talked about social behaviors, immediately the investigators that study Alzheimer's were like, oh, you know, social behaviors are disrupted in patients with Alzheimer's, even before they have memory deficits. And I was like, what? Oh. Like, they get aggressive, like, mm -hmm. there's some changes in social interactions. 
and they even have like a name for it like in terms of symptoms like moonlighting something like that i don't remember the name so even a disorder that we would never have described as like it affects social interactions actually could affect affect social interactions um, then there's social anxiety, as you mentioned, where like the social stimulus itself is becoming a source of anxiety in a way that is um, detrimental to the interactions of that person and to the life of that person. Then in depression, I like thinking of depression as well because social motivation decreases. So motivation for lots of things decreased, right? And including motivations to socially interact and seek those relationships that are so important for health, right? Then there's autism, which is a disorder in which social communication is disrupted and the perception of like what the other person wants and the perception of social cues and how both how to read those cues and how to give them, right? Um, so social communication is basically disrupted. And then there's schizophrenia, which also disrupts your social interactions because like, because of lots of reasons, but um, those are the most common ones that I think of. And so there's different ways in which scientists try to model these disorders. And the majority of the ways, except with social, so social anxiety and social and depression, there's, there's really not any genetic models for that. But for autism and schizophrenia, there's genetic models, which means some genes have been identified as being high risk for that disorder. And then there's animal models with mutations in those same genes that mimic what is seen in the population. And then those animals have some changes behaviorally. So then that sort of validates the model. Mm -hmm. And we say, okay, then we can understand what's different in that disorder by using this genetic model. The challenge there is that, for example, shank is a gene that it's mutate that is a very common mouse model for autism. And, but in, in reality, only 3% of the people with autism have that mutation, oh, right? Wow. So it's still, we don't know if like the cases that are not, that we haven't identified what the genes are, will be different there or not, mm-hmm. right? Like, obviously many different disruptions are giving the same behavioral output changes. So there's many ways to disrupt the system and get to the same mm-hmm. place, right? But so, even even that same place is also, I mean, it is a spectrum. So it's also so different. Right, that's so true. Mm-hmm. It's just neurodiversity, right? I exactly. think that's the term, right? Like the, I love that term. It is. I like it a lot too. I don't know who invented it, but it's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's like there's different ways to think about stuff and interact with each other. And as long as it's functional, right? And you're healthy and and doing well then it works right Mm -hmm. um it's only when the patient cannot really uh participate in society that it becomes a problem really Mm -hmm. um but yeah it is extremely challenging to be honest so some scientists focus on these very specific genetic models um other scientists focus on studying the healthy brain and then seeing what circuits change behavior. And then, you know, in humans, you could do fMRI, you could look at connectivity of the patients and then see what are the patterns of like, maybe there's decreased connectivity within some brain regions. So then let's study that in the animal model, um, see how it compares. So instead of thinking of what are the genetic disruptions, what are the connectivity disruptions? Mm-hmm. So then that's a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. To look at those studies and then 
see what interesting brain connections are changed and then study that connection in the mouse. We still don't really understand how most of these brain disorders are disrupting the neural network of social behaviors. For now, I like how the term neurodiversity acknowledges the fact that our brains are all unique in some way, and the reality is that we all have our own ways of engaging in social behaviors. I want to know more about the future directions in the world of social neuroscience. I'm excited about a lot of things, so um, instead of answering that, I'm going <laughs> to think about, like, what, it, what do I think it's needed? I think that, uh, so, people that have been studying, like, the brain using these techniques that allow us to, like, dissect circuits and stuff, and especially people in social neuroscience, they're usually focused on one brain region or a connection between two brain regions, but unlike in humans, where, like, people image the whole brain, in animals, there tends to be more like a narrowness of like this cell type or this circuit this very specific a to b connection and we have very little information of the whole network so i'm interested in like studying like a network of brain regions um so i think that level is needed in in these animal models that are powerful because there's many studies that are showing that this the bunch of different circuits do the same job so they probably are working together Mm -hmm. so i want to study that i want to study the network level and then another thing that's needed is better resolution analysis of the behavior because you can only understand the neural mechanisms of something that you can measure. So if you're not measuring the behavior correctly, you're not going to understand like the underlying neural signals that relate to that behavior. Mm-hmm. And but but there's lots of hopes hope about that because um, we have an explosion of approaches in the artificial intelligence community to help uh, quantify videos and to help like quantify behavior. So, you know, our data in which like we analyze behavior is images, right? So image processing and image analysis Mm -hmm. has been improving and improving. So neuroscientists that study behavior can finally take advantage of that and incorporate that into the lab. The thing that's really poor in the general behavioral neuroscience community is the reporting of social relevant variables. Like very often people forget to report if the animals are isolated or grouped house and in experiments in which there's a social stimulus, there's very little information of that social stimulus. For that question of like, does it matter who the other is? In many experiments, it's just like a noble animal. Okay, but was that noble animal like the same age? Were they group housed? Mm-hmm. Were they a dominant? Were they a subordinate if they're group housed? Were they isolated chronically? So then they're maybe aggressive, you know, like so there's um, people can do a better job just reporting, right? Like what are the, if you use social animals as stimuli, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Follow In Your Brain on Twitter and let me know what topic or guest you'd like to hear on the podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.